Um, so, going to Romans chapter 7. Remember, we got to Romans chapter 7, and we want to carry on with our study in Romans 7. suppose it's a bit provoked by the fact that my wife and I went out to lunch with someone the other day, and uh, I was talking to this person at lunchtime, and um, I always think that if you take someone out to lunch and you're paying for the meal, you have a right to talk about what you want to talk about. If they're paying for the meal, you're polite and talk about what they want to talk about. I was paying for the meal, so I was going to say what I wanted to talk about. And so we got round to the question. Um, one of the questions is um, whether a man's a Christian or not and how you know. And so I got talking to this fellow, and I, in the end, you know, he was um, rather evasive, so I looked him in the eye, and I said, now tell me, have you had a real inward experience of Jesus Christ? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, that means you haven't. So let's start from there. And um, spoke to him. Well, he's grown up. You know, he went to Cambridge and filled his head with stupidity, which is usually what you do at Cambridge or at Oxford or anywhere else, I suppose, for that matter. Uh, because what he hadn't learned was uh, what a real relationship with Christ really was. And the more I spoke with him and the more I spent time with him, the more apparent it was that he was a million miles away from God in his soul. In fact... All he'd got was some pagan belief in the existence of God, really. And that's awful when you see a man like that. And in the end, I said to him, you know, as we were munching uh, uh, fresh cream pudding, I said to him, uh, looking at him, I said, Do you know, it's a shame that such a nice fellow like you is going to hell. <laughs> such a shame. I said... And the trouble is, you're so nice, you'll go there quicker without realizing it. And he said to me, you know, you're an arrogant fellow saying a thing like that. I said, no, I'm just telling you the truth. He said, so what you're saying is, people that believe what you believe are right and everyone else is wrong. I said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying anyone that has a faith in the Bible and believes what the Bible teaches is right and everyone else is wrong. And he said, so everyone that believes what you believe. I said, well, I didn't say that, but I do take the Bible to be the word of God, and I'm a fundamentalist. He said, that's arrogance. He said, think of it. There's so many in Christendom that believe differently from you. Are you telling me they're all condemned? And so, with honesty, I answered, I don't condemn them, but God most certainly does in his word. Oh, that's arrogance, he said. Oh, I said, so you're saying that the majority are right. And so he said to me, well, yes, he couldn't believe that all that number were going to hell. So I said, well, let me ask you a question then. Wasn't it utter arrogance of Jesus Christ who only had 12 people and one of them deserted him? Wasn't it utter arrogance of him? 
to stand against all the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, everyone, and tell them they were all wrong and he was right. He said, well, that's different. That was Jesus. I said, well, it's no different in this age. Any true Christian has to stand against the majority of religious believers and we all go the same way and if they persecuted Christ, Christ promised they'd persecute us. If, if they hated Christ, they'll hate, hate us. And it's fear not little flock. And God always has a remnant. And I said, in fact, uh, you by your doctrine must throw out John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Fox, William Penn, William Boo. In fact, anyone who brought revival to the country, you've got to condemn them because they were arrogant. They said everyone else was wrong. Well, of course, he didn't agree. So I asked him, I said, tell me, how keen are you on spiritual things? I mean, is it the foremost in your life? He said, well, uh, well, it's the same as my job. You know, it's uh, as important to him as his job was, his spiritual state. So I said, if that's so, tell me this. Uh, if you lived in a town where it was run down and you worked in a solicitor's office where the business was run down and it wasn't very successful, would you do something about it? And he said, yes, I suppose I would. I said, what would you do? He said, well, I'd either shake it up or I'd move somewhere else. I said, then why don't you do the same with your church? Well, it's not a same analogy, he said quickly, having told me that his church was dead. And so I just kept putting questions to him. And then he said he didn't like the analogies. Most amusing, really. So then uh, he said, well, are you saying your church is perfect? And I said, well, let's put it like this. A baby is perfect from birth, and after three weeks you don't buy the baby false teeth. You just wait and the baby grows. I said, our church is in growth it hasn't come to maturity but it's growing and God's dealing with people and there's growth in it and life in it. He said, well that's not a good analogy. I said, oh I'm sorry, I was just using the one Jesus Christ used. You know, I thought that I could use his analogy without you getting offended. He said, you've got to be born again. So, so that babyhood's quite a biblical thing. In fact, it talks about babes in Christ, doesn't it? I found that his mind uh, got very strained and he went very red and decided, well, he decided that it wasn't really the done thing to talk on spiritual things and to confront people with them. So I said to him, well, Peter, dear friend, I said, I've got a question for you. I kept asking him questions. And he said, well, what is it? I said, is it better for me to offend you or to offend God? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you see, I have to answer for your soul in that day. I've got to be faithful. You could turn around and say, well, you had lunch with me and ate an ice cream cake and never said anything. And in that day, I'll have to answer to God. But now, I said, I've offended you, but I haven't offended God. I've confronted you and challenged you. But I said, I, I fear God more than I fear you. And so if you want to get offended, that's your problem. 
But one thing I'm not going to do is offend God. At that point he laughed, trying to hide the offense that he felt inside. But you know, when you see people like that, you think, well, isn't it a shame that such a nice person should go to hell? Going to church every Sunday is a good Anglican on his way to hell. No real experience of God, no real life, just going to hell. That's an awful thing, isn't it, really? Hmm? And really, the reason I'm telling you that is because we're just coming to deal with Romans chapter 7 and the fourth verse, which explains really the first three. Uh, you remember uh, we, we've been doing our study in Romans and we're starting verse 1, so I can refresh your little minds in case they have become somewhat addled with age. Know you not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law, how the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And I want to go on to study this fourth verse, you remember we talked about marriage and we saw how it didn't quite hold up the illustration. If you took it too literally uh, and misunderstood it, you would come into some confusion. Now, the fourth verse is the application of the first three verses. And what it is, if you want to know, is it is a total summary of what a Christian really is. It contains in it a complete definition of a true Christian and so from this verse you can discover whether you really are in Christ and whether you're really moving in Christ and um, it's all hidden there and it just needs unpicking of course you have to have a mind lighted by the Spirit of God to be able to see these things uh, and anyone who's truly born has that to different degrees and as we develop so your mind becomes more aware and so we're going to look at it um, bit by bit but first of all I want to point you to two parallel scriptures the first is in uh, chapter 6 verse 11 and you remember, likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And uh, the two things are basically contained in this verse. 
And I want to go on and pick it out and show you how it works, how it operates, how it's defined, and how it says a lot more than just those two verses. Okay. Now the first thing that it tells us is it tells us the definition of a Christian. It defines what a Christian is. And that's good. Brethren, you are become dead to the law and so it defines a person who's a Christian is one who is dead. And then it goes on, even to him who is raised from the dead. We shall be married to another, even to him who is raised in the dead, from the dead. Um, now we need to realize that we've not only had death, but we've got life. We're married after a dead person can't be married. We were raised in him, as you remember, in chapter 6. And we need to see that we are born into death and into life. Now, I'm dead to the law, but I'm alive to Christ. Otherwise, I couldn't be married to him. All right? And those two things are two keys to any Christian experience. Now, the error that's taught in this day and age that must always be withstood is um, um, people who want to brush up their Christian life or they want to uh, turn over a new leaf or they look for some improvement or slight modification in their manner of living. Um, those people are in total error. And there are a lot of men that preach from the pulpit that a man, what he needs to do to be a Christian is you take the standards that Jesus lived, you follow his example, and you live up to it to the best of your ability and you're a Christian. Now that is total and complete and utter error. That does not make you a Christian. All it makes you is religious. And those errors must always be stood against. Now, the truth is, I have to come into death. I'm baptized into the death of Christ, do you remember? I'm also raised in his resurrection that I should walk in newness of life. And if you want to look at it, it's in chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from, up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, death and life are important ingredients of a Christian life. And the truth is, not that we're brushed up or we, we turn over a new leaf, but the truth is, we're born again, we become a new creature, we become a new creation, and we are regenerated. We become a different generation. That is the truth in God. Now the first thing you need to understand is that a person who's truly a Christian is not in essence, the same spirit as the person he was born. There is some fundamental change in the wellspring of him that has changed him round and changed the Adamic nature and destroyed the Adamic nature and given him a new life in Christ. And he's a new person, totally within. And the wellspring of his being and the thing that drives him and controls him is totally and completely changed and Christ comes within. Now that is the first thing. In other words, as Jesus said, you must be born from above. Born again. Born of water and the Spirit. 
And so anyone who's a Christian must have a fundamental change, become a new creation, a new creature, and be born again. And so Paul encapsulates that in the definition, you're dead to the law and you're alive to Christ, you're married to Christ. And that is the truth. I become dead to trying to live up to a standard in the law because I find I can't. And I become alive to Christ when I take away my efforts and I realize that I depend on his sacrifice for my life. And I put my trust in what he's done. Then I come into life. And those two steps are essential in every person's life if they're to be a Christian. The second thing I need to know is that I have an entirely different relationship. You'll notice it says that you should be married to another. Now if you're married to another, it stands to reason that you must have been married to someone else in the first place or you can't be married to another. Is that not logic? Well, who were you married to in the first place? Hmm? Sin. All right? And who are you married to now? Jesus Christ. So you've got to be married to another. So what changes is our relationship to God? That goes a fun, undergoes a fundamental change. Once, because of sin, I feared God. Once, because of sin, I felt condemnation. When I came and I heard the word of God preached, it wasn't a joy to me, it was a pain. When people came and they presented Christ, I found it highly offensive. Why? Because my relationship was wrong. I saw God as someone with a big stick who was going to send you to hell if you didn't repent and turn. And my whole idea and concept of God was probably, you know, Dante's Inferno. Uh, it was an idea of hellfire and brimstone, and that was God. Now, my relationship changed when I was born again because I suddenly knew that God was a God of love, cared for me, and had made provision for me. So my relationship changed. And here in this verse, Paul tells us, our relationship changes. I know now I'm not under law, I'm under grace. I don't stand by what I've done, I stand by what he did for me. All right? The third thing is I have an entirely new purpose. You'll notice at the end of the verse that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, notice it's not unto self. Now, before you become a Christian, there's only one person you live for. Yourself. There's only one person you do anything for. Yourself. Now, you might be one of these good do-gooders. You know, there's plenty of them around. I don't need to point them out too much. But the people who work in Oxfam shop, you know? Go collecting for Christian aid. I suppose it's Christian to aid the people who are the sponsors. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the money just goes to people who, who don't deserve it and they most certainly aren't Christian. But what we have to realize is that those type of people are, 
are not really having a purpose other than self because really they just feel good. A lot of people help other people not because of, um, they have some desire to serve God but basically because it makes them feel good to do so. And I'm sure we've all done things and helped other people for our own benefit rather than for the other people's. Haven't we? Isn't that the way it works? Now that isn't serving God, that's serving self. But it's in such a subtle way that it would be hard to convince us before we're born again that really we were serving self and not the other person. Isn't that so? But when we come to Christ and we really see what we are and we begin to see our motives that cause us to do things, we realize we serve self. You go to work and you live to serve yourself. You get up in the morning and your plans are to serve yourself. You live for yourself. You don't live for God, you live for yourself. You serve yourself. That's before you're a Christian. Hmm? Of course, when Christ comes in and begins to take hold of your life and you're truly born again, first thing that happens is you realize you must bring forth fruit unto God and so you cease to live for yourself and you live for Jesus Christ. Don't you? Hmm? Well, that's a question. We'll come on to the tests in a minute. The fourth um, thing that we find is that we have a new ability and strength and power. We find that whereas once we served sin, now because we're married to another, uh, even to him who is raised from the dead, that's Christ who's raised from the dead, we find we enter into that resurrection power. And so because of that power, we find we get a new power to live the way God wants us to live. And we find things changing our lives and somehow a power seems to help us. Isn't that true? Not that we always succeed 100% or 60 or 30, but we find a new power there, don't we? Now that power helps us. That's the power of God. And those four things must be resident in every Christian. And I assure you that anyone who's truly a Christian has those four things resident. Now, there are certain little acid tests you can make to, you know, it's rather like um, if you want to find out whether something's acid or alkali, you just get two bits of litmus paper, one red and one blue, dip them in and watch if they change color and, and you know what's what, don't you? No? I suppose that's what they used to do in my young days. I suppose they still do it. Not everything's changed, has it? Anyway, the first thing uh, that will happen if you're supposing, let's say, you're born again, how would you know? Well, the answer's simple. It's in the scripture and here's the acid test to see whether you're alkali or not. Um, in first epistle of Peter, first epistle of Peter,
You get one of the tests that you can always tell whether you're born again or not. First Epistle of Peter, chapter 2, page 323, for those who can't find it. Um, if you've got a good authorised version, from Cambridge. If you haven't, you've got the wrong one. But, um, okay, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. A babe has, or a, a Christian who's truly born again, one thing he has, he has a desire for the sincere milk of the word. Now it's strange, but you'll find, if you think back, before you became a Christian, could you have sat down and listened to someone expounding the scriptures? No. Would you have been interested in going to a meeting and sitting there for an hour? Would you actually have bothered ever to look at your Bible? No. Okay. Now you wouldn't, would you? Now there was no interest. If you went to church, the thing that you did when a vicar, if so be you went to one of those pagan temples, when the vicar got up to uh, speak, you would begin to pray. Probably the only time in the meeting you did pray that he'd shut up quick and sit down because you were fed up and anyway, who wanted to hear how you should look after dogs? Or how you should play golf? I remember one stupid vicar, he lives in Fifield, once said to me his idea of hell was a golf course with no holes in it. Now that, that, that's what he said to me. I said to him, I didn't play golf at the time I said to him I said I would have thought that would be heaven must be nice driving a golf ball down the fairway the wretched nuisance must be in frustration when you're trying to hit it in a little hole <laughs> so I said I would have thought the reverse but there you are I said you know you're a poor pathetic creature and I told him what I thought of him but there we are <coughs> yeah. do you remember that David yeah terrible fellow, not, no, no experience of Christ that's worth recounting. Um, I need to recount that the poor guy is in a terrible mess. But there he was, thinking it was a golf course. Heaven. Hell. Hell, <laughs> hell I mean. I suppose it could be a hell of a golf course, but... Um, it was, what, a, what a wicked thing to say. That's a vicar. I, I have no time for them, you know. I always remember years ago when a curate came round to see me and uh, when my wife and I lived in Burskill, this, this curate came round and he sat down to have dinner with us. You know, we invited him round because I always believe the first people you should try and help are the so-called ministers. Uh, you know, you can try and help them. This chap sat down and he talked with us and he said, I want to tell you a secret. He said, so I said, oh, what's that? He said, well, actually, years ago I was baptized in the Holy Ghost and I spoke in tongues. He said, but whatever you do, don't tell the vicar. 
because I don't want him to know because he'll be offended about it. So I said, oh, I see. Then I, I you know, it got to about 11.30 and so I said to him, you know, I'm tired now. I've got to go to work in the morning. I'll run you home. So I run this curate home, get outside his house and the light's on. He said, oh, my wife's still up. I'll come back to your house for a cup of tea. So I thought, well, that's a bit funny. So he ended up staying in our house till two o'clock so he didn't have to meet his wife. Uh, <coughs> so I got him home anyway in the end. Felt tired the next morning. <laughs> I was tired of him before I had the cup of tea. I won't say how I felt after I'd had it. So about two weeks later, we had the vicar and his wife round for a meal. And he said, it's one thing, he said, I don't want you to say anything. Whatever you do, don't say anything to the curate. But it's most strange, you know. When he came here, we had a letter from, of uh, reference from his last vicar saying he was baptized in the Spirit and he spoke in tongues, but he's never mentioned a word of it. And we haven't liked to ask him. <laughs> we were quite interested in it. <laughs> so there I was. A cleft stick. <laughs> Yeah. They call themselves ministers. Terrible it was. Anyway, it, needless to say, the vicar's son got gloriously filled with the Holy Ghost about a week later, which infuriated the vicar. <coughs> and wife used to call us all sorts of names over the telephone, the vicar's wife. And then she'd always add at the end, but I must confess, my son's changed. And you hear a bang as the receiver went down. But she'd always had that rider after calling us mud and other things that dwell in fields. Uh, she would put, us, put the phone down with such a bang. But always, just before she put it down, but my son has changed, bang, and the phone would go down, bless her. Mm. It was blessed when it did go down. One of the signs of, of someone is a, a desire, you know, full of milk of the word and, and just a desire to know the word and love the word and, and come and hear preaching. And if I find a person doesn't like that, I know one thing, they're not born again. Can't be. And bef until you're born again, there's no way that you can enjoy it. You just can't. After you're born again, there's no way you can't enjoy it. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the reason for that is all explained. That's why I like the Bible. It has it all laid out so easily. You have to be very silly to err. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says these words the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned now you know that if you haven't had a real experience of God there's no way you can understand the real things of God you just can't so one sign that you've had a real experience of God is firstly that you enjoy meeting with God's people, hearing the word expounded, reading your Bible. The next thing is 
that you find that you get an understanding of spiritual things, which before your birth you never could understand because the natural man just can't understand. So that's glorious. Now that's easy to know whether you pass acid test number one or whether you're alkaline. Uh, you've got to choose, haven't you? And you know. Well, you might say, well, I understand some of it. Well, do you have spiritual understanding? Does God quicken the word to your heart and do you suddenly realize and see things, have revelations from God as you read his word? Does it become alive to you or when you hear preaching? Does it sometimes so burn in your heart that the thing seems directed personally at you? And you know that it's speaking to you. Well, that shows you've been born. Because if you were a natural man, you just wouldn't have the capacity or ability to hear anything that was spiritual. It would be foolishness to you. I always found it foolish when people got up and uh, especially came along to speak to me in the street. I remember about a fortnight before I was converted, a man came along and, and he was wa I was walking down Wardour Street. I was on duty in plain clothes and this man accosted me in the middle of the pavement, which is a very unwise thing to do in the middle of the pavement, and thrust a piece of paper into my hand. Now, I did not know at the time, but it is what you call a tract. Uh, I took one look at it. I saw it had something religious on it. And I told him where I would put it if he didn't remove himself from in front of me. In not the most gentle terms. In fact, quite colorfully, I explained to him what I would do with his tract if he didn't withdraw. Now, I wasn't a Christian at the time. The embarrassing thing was when God did meet me and fill me with the Holy Ghost, about four weeks later I went to a meeting and who should be walking down the corridor but a fellow I told where I was going to put his track. <coughs> Very embarrassing to remember. <laughs> and he recognized me too. How about that? He was thrilled I'd got converted. I said to him, but one thing I want to make clear to you is you standing in my way had nothing to do with it. It provoked the wrong spirit in me, not the right spirit. Uh, but God met, had met me and there I was. He was a photographer at this meeting. Oh dear. I shall never forget his face when I saw his big grinning apish face coming walking towards me after what I'd said to him. If there had been a trapdoor in the ground, I'd have taken the exit. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, now, the, the, the thing is that in our natural minds, there's no way, is there, that we can uh, understand spiritual things until God lightens us. There just is no way. And we've all found, haven't we, when Christ really met us, suddenly the Bible becomes a live book. Once you couldn't understand it and suddenly when you read it you begin to comprehend what it was about and yet you could have read it before but it just didn't mean anything to you. People could have spoken to you before about Christian things but somehow it just went over your head. Is that not so? Hmm? Well, that's a sign you're born, you see. 
That's a good sign you're born. Okay, that's the first test. Second test, number two. Uh, one of the things that we have before we're born again, we have a slavish fear of God, don't we? The only reason we, a lot of us didn't go into absolute outrageous sin is we were frightened God might exist and know about it. Isn't that true? Now, we didn't like to admit it, but that was really the only restraining thing. We were terrified that God might zap us if we went too far. Now, everyone has that fear. They might not like to admit it, but basically man knows there's a superior being and his conscience bothers him, and it's a great restraining force, isn't it? Hmm? There's something somehow that won't let you go into the extremities of sin if you are normal. Of course, there are people who are abnormal, uh, who are children of the devil from birth, and those people have no restraint in them at all. And um, interestingly, a study, I, I can't remember who the psychologist was in America who studied, uh, I showed Ed Miller when I was with him, I think we were in a TWA office, and I picked up this magazine and, I, I just happen to be nosy when it comes to magazines. And uh, There was this article, and psychologists had studied criminals. And what they found is, I think it was something like 70% of the criminals who were really outrageous criminals in, in America, they discovered that they had no uh, understanding of right from wrong. They saw that society was against them and was... Uh, fighting them, but they had no realization or comprehension of their crime. They're children of the devil. And of course you've got the seed, of, Jesus spoke about the seed of the enemy as well as the seed of God in the world, and the world's, the field is the world. You remember the story? That's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, uh, where he talks about the world and the seed and the enemy coming and sowing his seed. And there are people who are just the seed of the devil. They're demons, really, and they'll go to a Christless eternity. Then there's the sons of God, and then, of course, there's those who could go either way. Uh, but we don't necessarily want to talk about that at this point. But there's that slavish fear, isn't there, inside yourself that somehow if you go too far, God will get you. Now, the thing is, when you're converted and when you're born again, you get an assurance your sins are forgiven and you see God not as a God to fear, but you change from slavish fear to love and you realize God loves you and you begin to respond in love to him. You don't any longer uh, have that terrible fear and the reason you do things right is you're frightened to offend a God of love rather than you're frightened to offend the law and break the law of God, it switches to a love relationship. All right, that's the second thing. And in every person who's truly born again, there's an awareness of the love of God to them, and the thing that they don't want to do is offend a God who really loves them. If so be, they've been born again. Now, that's the second acid test. If that relationship has changed. The third thing is, uh, as I said before, there's this totally new purpose in life. 
Now, if I find that someone's still living for self, then I doubt that he's been born again. Because when you're born again, you realize that you owe your life to Christ and therefore you have a totally different purpose in life. To live, to bring forth fruit unto God. And you will find... Now, of course, it's in varying degrees. I'm not saying that the moment you're born again, uh, you're in full maturity as a saint. Don't think that. But there becomes a totally different direction in your life and you consider the will of God more than you consider your own will. True? That's the way it is with a born-again person. Now, the fourth thing is you have a new ability and a new power to deal with situations that arise. And I think I told you the story that one of my heart throbs before I was converted was a little maroon mini with leopard skin seat covers and uh, a nice uh, radio which I used to put on full blast wherever I went. Um, keep the noise of the traffic out, I suppose. And I used to love this little car. And God saved me and filled me with the Holy Ghost. And I was going down one day driving, I think, near Croydon. I was going up this hill and I came to traffic lights waiting to turn right. It was at a T-junction. And I sat there waiting and a lorry came round the corner and began to descend the hill. And suddenly I found, instead of just waiting at the traffic lights, I was going backwards. The lorries, uh, kind of mudguards, fenders, had hooked onto my car and were dragging me back down the hill. Very undignified in my maroon mini, going backwards down the hill, uh, kind of joined to this dirty, muddy, filthy lorry. I bleeped the horn gently with full force to let him know that I was being taken on a ride I did not wish to go on. And so I bleeped the horn and the chap pulls over, you know, stops, pulls over, realizes what he's done. And I got out the car and just looked at him and I said to the chap, oh, well, I said, these things happen, don't worry, it's only a car. Got back in the car. <laughs> lights changed, turned off around the corner. <laughs> I thought, only a car! <laughs> Pull the car over to the side, got out. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you get a new power within, in situations. You'll react differently. <laughs> it's only after you realize what you've done. You realize there's a new power there. And... Um, God had taken away the idolatry from my heart. It really didn't bother me that much, but it did shake me up when I realized what I'd done. In total calmness, I suddenly came to the realization God had taken out of me the love of things. And that happens if you're truly born again. It's one of the signs. And you need to know that that's happened. Now, those four signs will be in every individual who's truly been born of God. To lesser or greater extents, but they will always accompany a true experience of conversion. All right? That's why Paul incorporated them in this verse. Now, the question is, how do I get there? Isn't it? How do I get into birth? That's the real important question and it's the one that I need to know the answer to.
what would your answer be? Because it is in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. How do I get there? 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 Pardon? By the body of Christ. It says so, doesn't it? See, all you have to do is read it. It's, you know, it doesn't take much intelligence. Um, by the body of Christ. That's how I get there. I mean, it's true to say you become dead to the law, but how do you become dead to the law? By the body of Christ. So, of course, what you were telling me is what you are when you're there. How you get there is by the body of Christ. Now, that means that Christianity is totally and completely and 100% Christ-centered. Uh, and there's tremendous errors that are proclaimed and put forward as Christianity, and people will tell you that you're really become a Christian because uh, you're saved by the belief in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus Christ took the form of flesh, and if you really believe that Christ is God, then you're saved. That is a lie. Of course you must believe that, but that does not bring salvation. And you must understand that. And then you will get other people who would say, well, of course, the way you're saved is by following the teachings of Jesus, acknowledging that he was incarnate, acknowledging he was the Son of God. If you believe he's the Son of God and you follow his teachings, you'll be saved. That, of course, is a total lie. And then there are other people who will go far further than that and say, well, of course, you must believe that Jesus Christ was incarnate, you must believe his teachings, but the other thing you must do is follow the example of his life, and then you'll be saved. That also is a total lie. Now, how are you saved? By the body of Christ. Now, what does it mean? If that's how you're saved, what does it mean? I mean, you've got to know what it means, haven't you? It's logical, isn't it? He didn't offer up his blood. Pardon? Because he took my sin into his own body on the tree and he died to it. Does that save me?
Your sin separated you from God indeed. Well, it's good to know we have a room full of Christians who know what they believe. Romans 6, 6 tells you, says David, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. What does it tell you, David? Now, I'm really asking you a fundamental question. What, did, what was your answer, Albert, again? Your what? Well, actually, the real answer is in the verse. So, I mean, I must not hold you back from looking at the verse, and now you can tell me what the answer is. Okay, well, I shall give you a bit of help. Wherefore, my brethren... You also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now what did Christ do? Died to the law. He died to the law. And you also become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now it's fundamentally important that you understand that. Um, he was put to death under law and the atonement is the thing that is most important that Jesus Christ was condemned under law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law he was perfect, he was without blame and then when he came to Calvary's cross, he took our sin and he became sin who knew no sin and he fulfilled the just requirement of the law, which is the day that a man sins, he shall surely die. And when Christ took your sin and my sin into himself, the law required the death penalty for you and for me. So Christ died according to the law. Because when he became my substitute, my propitiation, 
What happened was he took into his own body my sin and because he identified with my sin through John the Baptist, he was baptized, you remember, in the River Jordan for the remission of sins. Do you remember that? And he said it must be that the law be fulfilled in that day. And then, of course, on Calvary's cross, he took my sin into himself and God's requirement of that sin was that death must occur. Now, death passed on every one of us because we sinned, didn't it? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the only person who lived a perfect, pure and holy life was Jesus Christ, God himself, incarnate in his Son. And he came and lived that life. And so Christ fulfilled the law. And the fulfillment of the law wasn't in what he lived and he did, but it was in his death he fulfilled the law. Now you do understand that, don't you? The fulfillment of the law means that he paid the penalty in full for my sin and your sin. Though we didn't deserve to die, yet tasted he death for every man, the scripture says. All right? Now what I need to see is that because Christ fulfilled the law, and became dead to the law and took death by the law for me and for you, I become in him dead to the law. In other words, it's as though that just death that took, he, he took, I, I enter into. And therefore the law is fulfilled in me and the penalty of the law is fulfilled in me in the same way as it was fulfilled in Christ. That's why it says, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law. Do you understand that? The death must come to law. Now it doesn't say dead to self. Dead to law. And we need to understand that. And Christ um, took the um, cost of our sin. If you look in Galatians 4.4, you'll see it. why it was necessary for him to die according to law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, you see, he, God sent his son to redeem us who were under the law. What we needed redemption from was redemption from the penalty that the law had passed upon us and the law said, in the day that a man sins he shall surely die. And therefore, communion with God was impossible while I was under law. And it's only when I come to Christ that that law is dealt with, the penalty of the law is dealt with, the law is fulfilled in me as it was in Christ, and I become dead to the law. So I can have communion with God because no longer does the righteous judgment of God stop me from having communion with him because the law has been fulfilled in Christ for me. Now, do you understand that? Or shall I say it again? 
You understand it? No. Yes. No. I don't know that I can. I'll say it again, yeah. What happens is I'm under the law and Christ was sent to redeem those that were under the law. Now the law says in the day that a man sins he shall surely die. So the penalty of the law is death, isn't it? To a sinner. Now all of us sinned and came short of the glory of God, didn't we? So we're all sinners. True? Hmm? So the law condemned us to death. Now Christ came to redeem people who were justly condemned to death. And we were justly condemned, weren't we? For the law was righteous and God is righteous and God justly condemned us and said in the day that a man sins that rebels against God he should die and therefore the death penalty was on all of us and we couldn't have communion with God because we were dead in our spirits we were dead in trespasses and sins weren't we? Hmm? before birth true? right well when Jesus Christ comes he came to redeem those that were under the law now the only way to redeem something and what the word means is it's rather like this let me give you an example supposing uh, let's take someone at random Allen was arrested for speeding on the motorway I took someone at random and the police managed to catch up with him and you know Alan you were doing 110 miles an hour on the M6 now not that I trust he would be doing such a speed or not that the police should catch up with him if he was uh, their car would probably be panting uh, but anyway he gets arrested and he goes to court and they say well, Mr. Green, because you speeded at that speed, you'll find a hundred pounds. Now, he says, well, you know, being like he is, he said, well, time to pay. <laughs> and they say, well, you've got 28 days. Otherwise, go to prison for six months. No, that's a bit hard. They don't do that. I don't think on speeding. But, you know, you've got, you, you'll have to forfeit your freedom. Now, on the 28th day, Alan could go to court and he'd say, well, uh, the 28 days are up, I haven't got 100 pounds and, and I've come to pay my fine and I can't. And the chap looks in the book and says, but just a minute, um, it's already paid. So Alan says, oh, but I haven't paid it. The chap says, well, I don't care whether you paid it or not, sir, but in the book it's paid. Someone came in and paid it. Now, Alan could turn around and say, well, I don't want someone else to pay my fine. And he'll, the chap in court would say, well, I'm sorry, sir, the, it's been paid and that's it. You know, the punishment's been paid and you can't pay twice for the, for the offence. And I might say, well, I don't want someone else to go and do it for me. I'd rather go to prison. I'm not going to pay. The chap says, well, I'm sorry, you can't go to prison because it's paid. He could say, well, it's a mistake. And he said, no, it's in the book here. Someone's paid the price and you cannot go to prison. 
we're not going to give you free board and lodging for a month. You can't go to prison. Say, well, look, this is unreasonable. Why should someone else pay the penalty for me? A jailer might turn around and say, well, someone redeemed you from the curse of the law. In other words, the redemption was the hundred pound fine and someone else paid it for you. Now, in the same way, the death penalty was passed on all of us for our sin. Christ came, perfect, pure and holy, and he died to sin once and forever. And so when you come before God, you discover that you can't pay the penalty if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because Christ has already paid it for you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has already paid the penalty and has redeemed us who are under the curse of the law. So there's no more curse on us because Christ has paid the price in full. Now that's what it means to be redeemed. All right? Redeemed from under the curse of the law. Now do you follow it? Or shall I explain it again? In a different way. All right? That is what it means to re be redeemed from under the law. Now you and I have been redeemed. Therefore we're dead to the law. The law and the penalties of the law have no effect on us because Christ not only atoned for my sins that are past, he also atoned for my sin in present and the sin that if I should ever commit any more, which is undoubtedly possible, unlikely, then he atoned for that as well. So there is no way that I can get myself back under law. Because whenever I try to, I discover that Jesus Christ has paid the full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice and it's coped with all sin of mine throughout eternity. Except, I mean, not eternity, throughout life. Um, it's coped with it, and it's dealt with it, and it's gone. Now, because of that, I'm dead to the law. The law doesn't have any effect on me, because the penalties have been taken away. Now, you might say, well, yippee, does that mean I can do what I like and I'll always be forgiven? No, because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. You try and step out of line and you'll find the penalty of the law won't come on you and God won't deal with you on that basis, but he'll deal with you as a son. And you watch it, that's far worse. Um, so, we, we're dealt with as sons by chastening. But we're totally redeemed from the law and the law can't ever bring its power to bear on us again. Now isn't that wonderful? Now that is the key thing in this verse that Paul makes key in the verse and it's the key to Christian salvation. The thing that people miss out is the most important thing is Christ's death and his resurrection not just his death. Now the way that I know that that sacrifice was full, perfect, sufficient and complete is because death couldn't hold him. Now if Christ had been crucified and hadn't risen from the dead, then I would never know that death had been conquered. Because 
my sin and your sin were laid on him and he was crucified, dead and buried. But if he didn't rise again, then I would know that it wasn't a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice because death could still hold him. So the only way I know it's a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice is because he rose from the dead on the third day. That's why Paul writes in the last verse of Romans 4, you remember, it says that he was delivered for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. And we need to understand that uh, resurrection is a vital part as well. It's number two of um, this part. Okay, uh, I need to understand that. And another uh, showing of it, if you just look at Romans chapter 3, verse 26... Uh, and well, let's take verse 25. Whom God, this is Christ, hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins or the sending away of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded by law. what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now what happens is I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what Jesus Christ has done for me. He took my sin into himself on Calvary's tree. And my salvation has nothing at all to do with what I do. What I have to do is believe what Christ has done for me and I'm justified and I'm saved and I'm redeemed from under the law purely by believing what Jesus Christ did on Calvary that he took my sin into himself that he died to it that he was buried and on the third day he rose again from the dead when I believe that Jesus did that and my sin was in him and God has put the righteous judgment of death upon Christ in my place, for he was crucified under the law, he came under the law, and he died under the law, and he rose again into newness of life, free from the reign of law, and the rule of law, into grace. And I enter the same way. All right? You understand that's why it says also in that verse, Romans chapter 6. Okay? Is that clear to everyone? Hmm? What? what, what yeah, yeah. Who said belief? Belief it isn't. Faith it is. You have to believe to have faith, but it's not belief. Belief is a noun, isn't it? Hmm? Faith is a thing you have in believing, not belief. How does faith come? 
Pardon? It's the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. So that's nothing to do with you, is it? Now you can't believe unless God gives you light to believe, can you? That is why you can talk to a hundred people and you can tell them the story of salvation. And I remember doing it at college one day. I was at uh, teacher's training college at the time, one of my many little fortes into the world. And uh, nothing to do with Charles. But um, I, I was at this teacher's training college and I, I was talking to some students and I explained the way of salvation to them and what it meant in Christ. And they sat there and they said, well, if that really is Christianity, it's too simple. You know, you mean all you have to do is accept what Christ has done. That, that's too simple. I couldn't accept that, they said. Now, you see, the difference was they believed what I said but couldn't accept it. Now, you can't believe in the sense of faith unless God quickens the word to a heart, and, and then you can't not believe it, if you know what I mean. Because it just becomes so obvious, you know it's true. Now what changes it from something that the natural man just can't accept to a thing that you can accept, a gift of God called faith? God just gives you faith, and somehow, without any effort, you find you know it's true. Now, how many found that? There was a day when you just suddenly found you knew it was true. Now, there was days when you could never have believed it, hearing the same thing, but suddenly you know it's true. Is that true? Now, that is birth. That's when you're born again. That is when the gift of God and faith and life comes into you. Now, there is no explanation. Now, a lot of people can believe intellectually before that, and they can have beliefs without faith and what we have to be careful of is kind of Calvinistic uh, intellectual beliefs such as that chap Peter had the chap I was talking about he was Calvinistic before well years ago it was wasn't it Peter he was Calvinistic and, and, and he, he believed all the doctrine without faith coming now faith is the gift of God and there is no perceptible way that you can have faith or get faith there's no logical reason I remember when I was converted one of the things that happened uh, Dima Shikarian led me into the things of God I remember him uh, I was sitting up there they'd given their testimonies and, and Dima said to me he said um, do you know and believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God I turned to him and said, but I've always known that. But for the first time in my life, deep down inside, I really knew it. Now, I can't tell you why, at that point, it changed from an intellectual belief to a heart realization that it was the truth and nothing can sway me from it. It was at that point faith came. He said, do you believe he's risen from the dead? I said, I've always known that. But for the first time in my life, I really knew. I'd heard stories before. I'd heard people say it before. I would have said I had a belief in it before. Or should I say a belief about it before would be more accurate. But at the point 
where Demas said that to me, faith came into my life and my heart, and I knew it to be true without any shadow of doubt, and from that day forward I have never doubted. And I might say I couldn't doubt. Anyone who's truly born again could never doubt that. It is something that is just so so real and part of you that it's impossible to, to believe anything else. Or so it is after 15 years or 16 or whatever number it is. I never know. My wife keeps track of years. I suppose it's, she just keeps counting my gray hairs and has to keep track of them. But uh, 50, 17 years, is it? Oh, well, there you are. Um, it's probably nearer 18, I suppose, now, isn't it, really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how many it is. I, I'm not. I'm hopeless when it comes to dates. Um, but there was that point where it became faith, and I've never doubted it. Now that's a sign of a born again person. There's, you just know it's true, and, and there's never any question in my mind. Well, is Jesus really God and the Son of God? Did He really die and rise again? I mean, that's beyond question. I couldn't question that. There's just no way I could even consider a doubt. It just doesn't enter me. That's birth. That's when real faith comes. Now, faith's a gift of God, and that just comes sovereignly from God. Now, there is no way in which I do a work to believe. That was just something God implanted in me. Seed of faith. Is that all right, Melvin? That explains it fully, does it? Now that's the difference between belief and faith. You believe, but you believe because God's done the work, not because you believe something. So it's no good saying to someone, you know, they sing that favorite song, only believe, you know, and up get people, only believe. And they wander to the front, they kneel down, only believe. And they get up afterwards and they go back to their seat and you can see from the look on their faces that they're trying to believe. I've watched people out the front and you can see, oh Lord, you know, Lord, Lord. And you can hear by their prayers and you can see by their faces and you know by their body position and their attitude whether God's met them in faith or whether it's still a long way off. They're believing but they're believing in self-effort. But when you come to faith, it's so easy. And that's the difference. Now, what makes the difference? Well, I don't know. I, I remember the story of Charles Price. Great gift of healing Charles Price had. And I think I must have told you this story 20 times, so I'll tell you again. Um, he was going at this convention and he saw this fellow and there was a crowd of people around him praying for him to be healed. And they were commanding him to rise out of his wheelchair. And nothing happened. So Charles Price walked over to the man and he said, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, I believe God will heal me and it can heal me. And, uh, and the man believed. Charles Price looked at him and said, but you haven't faith. 
Jesus Christ is the healer. He is the one you need to meet. You need to have an encounter with Christ. Go home and come back when Christ has really opened your heart. And I think it was two days later, Charles Price was walking into the building at some two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon. And there was this same man sitting in a queue waiting for the doors to open in his wheelchair. And as he walked along, he saw him. And he called out, Mr. Price, Mr. Price, I'm going to be healed tonight. And so Charles Price walked over to him and he looked at the man. And the man's face just shone with faith. He could see the man had met Christ. So he turned to his friend and he says, does he have to wait till tonight? His friend said, oh no. And so they prayed for him there and he just stood out of his wheelchair and walked perfectly whole. Now you see, the difference was he had faith to believe that God could do it. But there came a moment when he didn't believe God could do it. He knew God would do it and was doing it. And he had faith and the Son of God, and bang, it happened. Now that's the difference between believism and reality. And no one can give you one substitute, one for the other. It either God does it or he doesn't. I've prayed for people. I know when I go to pray for them, and you say something to them like, do you believe God will do it? And they'll answer well, I believe he can. And at that point, you know, I mean, I pray for them just because I feel sorry for them. But that God would bless them. But there's no way they've got faith and therefore there's no way they can receive. There's other people, I know the moment that I come into contact with them, the moment I lay my hand on their head, I know they'll be healed. Because I know I made contact with faith. Bang. It's as certain as... Well, it's just certain. Now, what is the difference between the two? Well, one's a gift of God and one's an effort of man. And that's the truth of it. Uh, I tried the efforts of man and it doesn't work very well. Cue them up. You know, I believe God can heal. You know, these signs shall follow them that believe, they say in America. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Line up, brethren. You know, down they go. <laughs> um, push, you know. And if they don't fall too easily, a whip round the back as you push them. And, you know, falling under the power. <laughs> and, uh, terrible. <laughs> Blasphemous, really. Uh, now, I know some people that like, take old Trevor we used to know. Now, I, I used to notice that if people didn't fall down, he lost faith. And he'd start praying up a storm to try and get his faith going to see him fall down. And, and that doesn't work. It's not the way. When, when it's in God, it's just so easy. God's doing the work. When it's us doing the work and we're trying to believe into it, it's a tough battle, isn't it? You kind of flog a dead horse. It's rather like coming into a meeting. I come into, let's take this evening. Come into the meeting this evening and, okay, we sing a song of sixpence at the beginning. Uh, we chose a chorus and, I mean, it went off like a lead balloon. <laughs> Full of no air. Okay, so, so you, you find, well, that's not going. 
So you take another chorus and sing a song and sixpence. And that's not going to really lift. And then you sing, send your light, O Lord, and one or two, oh God, yeah, I need your light. That's right, send it quick. And, and aware that there's a need in them, thank God, one or two. Okay, but basically, God is not going to move in the meeting that way. Now, you can flog a dead horse, but you won't get it anywhere. That's what I've discovered. That is a truism. If you have a dead horse lying on the pavement and you flog it, it will not move. Have you noticed that? Try it sometime. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't go, does it? I mean, it won't even neigh. It just lies there dead. And so... Peter tried tonight. And then he said to me, you take over. So. <laughs> That's what I love, you know, preferring your brother. It's like the story of those two, two missionaries who went to the um, New Tribes Mission. They went to this Amazon tribe. Uh, and they hadn't been there two days and these natives got all excited and raced into this hut with their uh, little staggers and stuff were beaten and rummaging in this hut and then they walked out with great glee and they presented to this missionary a dead rat they just caught. It was a delicacy in this tribe. They ate them raw. So they give it to this missionary and fortunately he had a brother with him so preferring his brother he presented it to him. <laughs> Unfortunately the brother had no one else to present it to. That's why I never felt called to be a missionary in, in the Amazon basin. I didn't fancy eating dead rats. A fellow ate it. I hope you're not having supper tonight, Claire. But um, the the thing is, uh, you know, there's no way when when you get a meeting like that and it's not going. Best thing to do is sit everyone down and and you go in a different way. You preach truth. Now you see, truth can open a heart, so you don't need. There's many entrances into God and into faith. The thing that you mustn't do is try and push beyond that which where God will take it. You just think, well, you know, it's not going that way, so no hassle. If God doesn't want to move that way, he won't move that way. Now, I can push it. I can get both shoulders behind it. I can stir myself up. I can shout, holler, sing, dance, stamp, cry, weep, shout, go down, go up, go round, go in, go out, and it still will be there. And it will not move. And that's the way it is. So, when you get to that point, you say, well, <clears throat> ten going to go. So, when Peter offered it to me, I just shrugged my shoulders and said, no, you carry on. <laughs> See, you thought we were saying some great spiritual thing. We were. <laughs> now, that's what you call the advantage of being pastor. <laughs> uh, now, I learned that trick from Ed. I noticed that whenever there was a meeting that wasn't going well and I tried to pass it to him, he used to say, oh, brother, just see it through. <laughs> I used to think, see it through what? Graveyard? So I learned, you know, <laughs> you can get smart in old days. Let the other duffer flog the dead horse. It's good experience. That's the way it goes. Now, 
we have to learn, you see, what we have to do in our spirits is we have to be aware, okay, things won't flow. We can't make them flow. But that doesn't mean we've got an excuse for not seeking God's face. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that God wants to do different things at different times. Now, if faith doesn't quicken in the heart, there's no way you can compel God to do it. He won't. If God doesn't give the gift of faith, forget it. It won't go that way. Now, if you have the gift of faith, and God's given you the gift of faith to carry the meeting in, just come out here and take over from Peter. He'll be delighted. Won't you, Pete? Yeah, I knew he would. Well, he hadn't given me the gift of faith either, so I wasn't about to try it. I mean, what's the point in hitting a dead horse? People will think you're cruel. <laughs> so I don't bother. You know, I just... There it comes. And you sit people down and you preach. And you see, you bring them by truth in a different way. That's all. It's easy. Now, what you've got to learn is never try and push your spirit into something where God's not in it. You'll find when God's flowing, it's easy. And if God's not flowing, you won't get there. Now, some of you can try. I've watched you do it. You can see the contortion on the face, you know. And, and then uh, you try and sing louder or softer and you try and screw your eyeballs up so a tear will come out. Uh, uh, and you can move, but you can't do it, can you? It doesn't work, I know. I've had many more years trying it. And <laughs> it just doesn't go that way. And so... <laughs> you just, just say, well, that's it. And that's the way it is. It's a gift of God. So, well, surely we've got an ex uh, a responsibility. Yes, I've got a responsibility to be diligent and to be faithful to that which God's given me to do. But further than that, I cannot go. When he moves, I must move in him and with him. But if he don't choose to move, it's, totally pointless and in the same way I cannot get myself into a position of faith over salvation or anything else I knew with Peter that my wife and I we were sitting there weren't we love the other day and I said to my wife five times I tried to get my wife to take over now she in her old age has got to know me and she wouldn't she'd just kind of say yes and something and then she'd just drop it back into my court and I felt rather like a tennis player who kept getting lobbed. Uh, you know, I, the ball kept landing back in my court and I kept trying to gently nudge it over to my wife for her to take over because I could see we were flogging a bit of a dead horse. He wasn't going to come anywhere. And I prefer someone else to do it. <laughs> mm, but there we are. Or I hope that my wife might have tremendous faith and speak a word of life to him and he'd come in. The only thing I thought would happen was, oh, I just knew he wasn't going to respond and that's terrible. God doesn't give light to some people and they'd, they've had it. And in the same way, in a meeting you'll find the same thing. God just won't move. Because he chooses to do something else. What we have to have is responsive hearts and to sense what God wants to do and flow with it. Amen? Not to try and push it. 
Of course, when we come, we should praise God because he's worthy of praise and he commands us to praise him. When we come to love God, we should open our hearts in love and adoration.